questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. More than half of American adults and more than 75% of young Americans believe in intelligent extraterrestrial life. This level of belief rivals that of belief in God. American Cosmic examines the mechanisms at work behind the thriving belief system in extraterrestrial life, a system that is changing and even supplanting traditional religions. Over the course of a six-year ethnographic study, Dr. Diane Walsh-Pasulka interviewed successful and influential scientists, professionals, and Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who believe in extraterrestrial intelligence, thereby disproving the common misconception that only French members of society believe in UFOs. She argues that widespread belief in aliens is due to a number of factors, including their ubiquity in modern media, like the X-Files, which can influence memory, and the believability lent to that media by the search for planets that might support life. American Cosmic explores the intriguing question of how people interpret unexplainable experiences and argues that the media is replacing religion as a cultural authority and offers believers answers about non-human intelligent life. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas at Veritas Radio. If you want to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, click on the subscribe button. Join me on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And to tell us more, tonight's special guest is Dr. Diana Walsh Basulka, a professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington and chair of the Department of Philosophy and Religion. Her current research focuses on religious and supernatural belief and practice and its connections to digital technologies and environments. She is the author and co-editor of numerous books, including the latest, American Cosmic, UFOs, Religion, Technology. And we have a more comprehensive bio on our website. Her website is AmericanCosmic.com. And she joins us directly from North Carolina. Hello, Dr. Pasulka, and welcome to Veritas. Hi, Mel. I'm great. How are you? Excellent. May I call you Diana? Yes, please. Thank you. Well, we knew each other from way back when in 2012. I think this is the year when you started it all. Is that the year that started it all for you? You know, it was. It was the year that started it all. And I remember the conference we went to, and it was an amazing conference. And um, that was the year that really turned my research direction around and um, changed my mind about a lot of things and really kind of started me on this path. So it was in 2012 I met Christopher Bledsoe and his wife Yvonne and many others. And as you know, Chris and I did a great interview a few years ago. And anyone who hasn't listened, please, I highly suggest that you do. But I also met you at the same gathering. And you've been working on your book since then, American Cosmic. What yes. can the readers and the listeners expect of, of this book we'll be dis that uh, we'll be discussing tonight? Okay. Well, the book is not a typical... UFO book, um, book about, you know, that takes a case and goes into it. Um, basically, the book is a combination of uh, the story of the research and uh, the people that I met 
and the surprising elements that I didn't expect to find. It's also a story about the formation of religion. Um, I am a professor of religion, so I do study that. And it's also a story about technology in our age and the way in which the sacred is conceived today. Uh, but more than that, I think that it's surprising because of the type of people that I encountered and the journeys that we went on. We started in New Mexico. Uh, we ended up at the Vatican, uh, the Vatican Observatory. And, um, you know, uh, it was just quite a, a change of life for me. And so I think that I think readers will be very um, interested in this, the surprising elements. So they'll expect a UFO book, but it's actually not. It's it's a story. And um, I think it's a compelling story about religion and um, spirituality of our day. Indeed. And by the way, the second Vatican Observatory is right here a few miles away from me. That's uh, after the Castel Gandolfo in 1980, as you probably know, because of the light pollution, they decided to scout for a new location. It's right here, very close to me in Mount Graham. But when it that met is you, exactly right. Yeah. Yes. So when it met you, you told me you were a professor of religious studies, which we know. The first question that came to mind that I didn't ask you back then, how did you end up in the world of UFOs? As I know, you were never interested in the topics of UFOs prior to 2012. Yes. In fact, if anybody in 2011 had said that I would be writing a book about UFOs, I would have laughed at them. And um, I'm not, not to discount it, just to say that it was really not on my radar. Um, however, now that I'm, I'm pretty immersed in it, I realize that it, it actually was, was what I was studying my whole life. So I've been interested in religion since I was a child. And and what I've done is I've concentrated on the Catholic tradition of religious studies. Everybody has a specialty in my field. So I specialize in Catholic history. And so I've written a lot of publications on basically Catholic mystical ideas and Catholic mystical thought, uh, Teresa of Avila, saints like that. And what happened was that I had just finished in 2012, I had finished this book that I had written on the doctrine of purgatory, which is this idea for Catholics that when people die, their souls don't directly go to heaven, but go to kind of a, a place where they um, they become perfected. And this is called purgatory. And it was it was practiced for, you know, oh, gosh, maybe a long time. Almost, well, I'd say about 1700 years. It's still something that Catholics believe in, but they don't necessarily practice devotions to souls in purgatory anymore. And I wanted to know why. So I did a study uh, and it took me a long time, just like it took me a long time to write this book. Um, and I went to a lot of archives and I came up with original sources of um, reports of, quote unquote, souls from purgatory from about 1300 on the way up to about 1800. And what I noticed was that there were lots of reports of beings of light and conscious balls of light and aerial phenomena. And I was I was frankly pretty um, confused about that. And I really didn't know how to write it into my book. So I only wrote a couple of those into the book. But I I kept a log of these. And um, a friend of mine looked at my log and said, wow, this looks a lot like, you know, Steven Spielberg stuff like UFOs. And I laughed. And I said, oh, that's ridiculous. But um, the next week there happened to be a um, a UFO conference. And so I attended that. And that's where I met Chris Bledsoe. And Chris Bledsoe lives about an hour and a half uh, near me. And so I was able to talk with him. Oh, and that's right. That's right. North Carolina. Yeah, we're really close. So um, 
I spent a lot of time talking with Chris and his family. Chris is an experiencer. Um, most likely your audience has familiarity with him. Um, he he is a very sincere, wonderful person, and his family is, is just, just great, very hospitable. And so um, what I did was I recognized that the things that he was talking about were very, very similar to the things that I had been studying basically my whole life, Catholic mystical thought. And so um, this, because the experience is, you know, that's what we identify our patterns. And so I saw this as a pattern. And so that's how I started. And um, I was immediately invited to conferences about it. Uh, that's how I met you. And so that's the link. The link is, you know, and I in the first part of the book, I make it really clear, you know, what's the connection between UFOs and religion? And, you know, when you think about how religions start, a lot of times they start with some type of being of light, like uh, Islam started with uh, Gabriel, who is a being of light who comes to Muhammad. Um, you know, the New Testament, you have Mary confronted with a being of light, you know, who's uh, telling her that she has she's with child. And so a lot of times um, religions begin with sightings of aerial phenomena, beings of light and things like that. So uh, I perceived that the UFO phenomena was basically a, a what I would call a new type of religion. Um, but we also had this idea of technology, which I was also interested in and always have been in. So um, the, these combined. So that's how I started the, the um, book, Mel. It was difficult for me to talk about the subject of UFOs growing up in a Roman Catholic household and school, even though I've been fascinated by this since childhood. But most of the time, anyone religious would just think of it as nonsense, especially yeah. at my school and even at my household, my family. I'm curious, what is your position on the UFO phenomenon now, especially after having studied religion for so long? Yes. So I now see the, well, first, I would say that there, within the last 50 years, um, the UFO phenomena is actually, there are a lot of quote unquote UFO religions, okay, Raelianism, Um, Scientology has uh, UFO aspects to it. Uh, Mormonism has some UFO aspects to it. Um, so we do have, you know, there's the nation of Islam with the uh, mothership and, and uh, language of UFOs there. So um, UFOs and religion are not actually as separate as people would, would have them believe, right? Have us believe. Uh, so right now what I see is Uh, like when I met Christopher Bledsoe, he actually interpreted his encounters as both UFO encounters and as you as religious encounters. And what I found when I started to get into the research was that since 1947, when, you know, we had the uh, the the huge UFO, um, you know, it. it Yeah, it goes right in, you know, it goes, booms up into the public awareness. 1947 is is when people start to say, okay, there are these things called flying saucers. And people immediately started to interpret them as end time signs and things like that. So they were already be inter being interpreted as religious. So um, I think that that in one sense, UFOs challenge traditional religions, but in another sense, I think that people who are religious are already prepared to believe in UFOs. I mean, the Catholic Church doesn't have a, a position one way or the other, right? So I think that keeping our minds open is probably the best idea. Absolutely. And as you know, belief is a very important component in organized religion. I like the saying, I don't want to believe, I want to know, or as Jacques Vallée says, believe no one, 
believe nothing. Yes. Do you yes. consider yourself a skeptic when it comes to the subject of UFOs now? I think a skeptic would have a closed mind. So I'm not a skeptic. I'm a person who um, takes very seriously Valet's work, John Keel's work, and I and my own, you know, the, the advisors that I've had in my own training. And I don't conclude. I think that I'm trained in religious studies not to weigh in on the truth or falsity of religion. And um, that's, you know, that's something that philosophers can do or people who are, you know, religious or atheists can do. But people who study religion actually are trained to um, basically study it for its effects. We don't actually say, okay, yes, God is real or not real. We might have our personal opinion. But I went into the study of this book with the idea that I wasn't actually going to say yes or no. I was going to keep an open mind. And I have to say that there were stages of being, of having my mind expanded, <laughs> you know, because I was working with people who were at the top of their field in, in uh, science. And um, I'm coming from the humanities. And so that was um, that expanded my mind quite a bit and challenged me too, not just, you know, as a person who is or is not religious, but as a person who is, um, you know, has been trained in uh, to be, you know, um, critical, uh, skeptical, that type of thing. So I know I'm not skeptical. I mean, I am skeptical, but I'm I, it's a it's a type of skepticism that has an open mind. I'm open to the possibility. Absolutely. That, that's what I was wondering. And there's nothing oh, wrong. I mean, I think it's the best the best sensation to be an open minded skeptic, because that's how you should approach everything. I think so, too. So that that would best describe me. Now, I'm just thinking of 2008. I believe it was when the Vatican all of a sudden started really opening up about all of this. And I think uh, I forgot the the person the Vatican who said E.T. is our brother. Remember that back in 2008? And then the series, the TV series V came along. And I remember the first episode was when the first ships came along to the city. And a lot of people wondered how the Catholic Church would react. And the, the priests and the, and the bishop were talking, like, are they going to offer devotion to the ETs? Have you pondered this, if this scenario ever was ever to occur? Yes. So I, uh, I happen to be Catholic, and I, you know, I have a lot of friends who are Catholic, and I've worked at the Vatican. And um, the thing about the Catholic Church is that because— they, they're masters at having an open mind about things, right? About, well, particularly about this type of thing, about things that they, you know, they've had a long history of, of identifying what they would call heresies. And so I think they've learned their lesson and they don't do that anymore. So they say, okay, UFOs. You mean dark do we, ages. You know, yeah, exactly. The dark, you know, what we call the dark ages and that type of thing, you know, the inquisition and that type of thing. Galileo. Okay. So there's a long history of, um, saying no <laughs> or saying this, this shouldn't be. And so I think that um, given that history, uh, you've got people like Brother Guy Consolmagno, who's now the director of the Vatican Observatory, writing a book, um, you know, basically uh, with E.T. in the title of the book. And he's basically saying, OK, we've had this history, but I think that now we are it's OK for the Catholic Church to uh, be OK. You know, we we are scientists the whole scientific, the Western scientific tradition has emerged out of this, you know, European tradition. So um, with respect to Catholics and the UFO phenomenon, I find a lot of Catholics are believers. Uh, I find, but I mean, there's no official position. I don't think there can be an official position because 
the phenomena is slippery. You know, once once you begin to study it, um, it becomes something that is incredibly hard to say anything about other than that uh, there's evidence. A lot of people um, see things that are unknown, you know, uh, trained observers, uh, pilots. And uh, it would to say that it doesn't exist now, that's that's not that's something that is ridiculous. Um, but we say it exists, but we don't know what it is. Okay, so I think that a lot of the Catholics I know, some of the Catholics I know believe, some don't. Wasn't Pope, correct me if I'm wrong, because you're the expert, wasn't it Pope Leo the Thirteenth who realized that, well, we need to embrace a little bit of science here, folks, and it was in 1891 when they decided to build the Vatican Observatory to please some of the people who were more scientifically oriented? Oh, I think, I mean... I think that there are, the Catholic Church is, you know, we live in the United States and uh, the United States is incredibly diverse. Well, I think that people have to think of the Catholic Church that way, too. The Catholic Church is global. There are billions of practitioners of Catholicism. And in, within the hierarchy of the church as well, you have people who believe different things. So you've got to think of the Catholic Church a little bit like we think of the United States. There are a lot of different states And we have a lot of different opinions. We may even vote politically different. You know, Arizona votes differently than California or, you know, Nevada. Well, yeah, you have so, Opus Day, and you have the rest of yeah, them. Yeah, ex exactly. So, um, you know, you have a lot of scientists that embrace science. You know, um, in the the Vatican, and then you know you have people who resist certain things as well. So I think that yeah. So you're correct that. Uh, The observatory is there to, you know, it's not the, they don't have the the strongest telescope in the world, but they're definitely there doing very legitimate work on the cosmos. They have a great meteorite collection and um, they're, you know, actively looking up at the skies in Arizona as well, as well as in Castle Gandolfo. What about this? Uh, <laughs> I, I guess people sometimes get confused with the name Lucifer of this observatory that's here in uh, Mount Graham. But I believe that observatory belongs to another entity. Am I correct? Okay, so there is a um, there is a telescope, and it is named that. <laughs> However, uh, actually, Brother Guy told me this as we were going up, and he was going to give a talk up at the observatory. And in the car ride, he told me the story. I said, well, how did the, the telescope, you know, how did it get its name? And it was named after a German man who was, a, I believe, an astronomer whose name was sounded like Lucifer. So it got translated as Lucifer. And then that's how it derived its name. It wasn't consciously named Lucifer as a joke or on purpose or anything like that. So, you know, if you do just a little bit of, you know, uh, scraping around, you can find this story about it. But I know that that type of, I, you know, that type of story just gets blown out of proportion. So I know it's a, an acronym for light, unified, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, I just find it that perhaps they could have used a different acronym, you know, being at the Vatican Observatory. But the, anyway, that's a different story. I'm sure after <laughs> writing, your, yeah, after, after writing your book, perhaps some of your views have change. Have your worldviews changed at all? Oh, definitely. My worldviews have completely changed. Um, I have to say that 2012 was um, 
was a turning point in my worldview. And it was a turning point because not only did I begin to understand that people were still having very intense experiences that they were interpreting as religious, because, you know, if you look at the publications that I've done, most of them are historical. So I'm looking at people who've had very, you know, very intense, Francis of Assisi, you know, seeing an angel, you know, this is in 1200, uh, Teresa of Avila, seeing an angel, you know, um, so this is, you know, this is hundreds of years ago. So I'm not actually dealing with people who today are seeing what they consider to be beings of light or angels or ETs, you know, they have various ways of naming them. And so I'm meeting these people and I'm talking to them and they're telling me the truth. I mean, they are not lying. What they saw, I don't know, but I'm not, you know, they, their, they, their lives have changed. And so this was very powerful for me. So I understood that in the midst of our world, that there is a very, very thriving, what I call religiosity, and that a lot of it is based on uh, encounters that people are having today with beings and ships and things that like that, and that the, they have various interpretations of them, almost like denominations. And so this was quite interesting for me. And I guess the most um, important change for me occurred when I was interviewing people. So the conference we went to, I interviewed a lot of people who are people that are called experiencers, people who experience um, sightings of UFOs, or they experience beings that they think are related to UFOs. We call them experiencers. Christopher Bledsoe is an experiencer. So um, as I, as I studied the experiencers or, you know, was hung out with them, that's what ethnographers do. They, they go into the community and they become a part of it and they listen and they sit with people and, you know, have food with them and, you know, just listen. And I met a group of people that were what I later came to be called the meta experiencers. And these were scientists. And some of these scientists were actually experiencers, but some of them were not. But one thing was um, occurred with them that was a theme that ran throughout this group was that they were mining information from the experiencers and they were using that for their own technologies and some of these people were extremely successful with their technologies and millions of dollars successful so i thought wow now that really changes how i think about this because when i was doing catholic history that wasn't happening <laughs> so this was another level of understanding this type of religiosity and really what kind of connected it with technology for me. And then um, that's when I began to read every book Jacques Vallée ever wrote, uh, starting with um, Passport to Magnolia, Magno oh, Magnolia um, Magonia, sorry. And, um, and then, you know, going on to the rest and meeting him and talking with him and learning about, um, you know, the in within the field of ufology, which is the field of people who study UFOs, um, usually, you know, a lot of them are non-scientists. Uh, there's a dichotomy and the dichotomy is this. It's that there either it's mystical and it's religious and spiritual or it's completely nuts and bolts. And we have to actually, you know, get rid of all the religion and just study the parts, if we can find them and study how the craft work, you know, if we can find a craft or something like that. And so this dichotomy, Jacques doesn't actually embody this dichotomy, because once you start to study the people who, you know, if you if you were to take the nuts and bolts people, the people who, who believe they actually have 
you know, parts of craft or whatever, and they're studying it. These people are extremely spiritual. They're extra, they feel extremely connected to these parts. So I recognize that this dichotomy that you also see, I, it was familiar to me because I had also seen it within Catholic history as well. Um, so you've got, you know, these, these, this dichotomous framing of the whole UFO phenomena, but with people like Jacques, you don't get that. Um, so I devoured the work of Jacques, of John Keel, of anybody who's written Jeff Kripal, um, uh, Deborah Battaglia, you know, people who are writing about the UFO phenomena within the last 30 years. And I've pretty much read as much as I possibly could. And, um, and also went to places with the, the meta experiencers. And so that's really what challenged me to think differently than I had thought before. To that conference or the conference that most people don't think that even happened. A lot of people <laughs> say to me, oh, Mel, that didn't happen. It was not published, really? folks. It was private, as you remember. Mm -hmm. But the people who were there, as you, as you could tell, I mean, very smart people, successful people. I wonder what came out of that conference because there was a purpose behind it. And obviously I made connections, you, I met Chris and many others, and perhaps, you know, things are still evolving. But in the preface of your book, it's about Dr. Jacques Vallée. Most of our listeners know who he is. Tell us about your involvement with him. Yes. Okay. So, um, I, um, I'd read a lot about Jacques. I'd read his books And, um, he's, you know, I read interviews with him, you know, watched interviews with him and I, um, from, I'm from California. He lives in San Francisco and a lot of my family still lives there. So I, I knew I was heading out to San Francisco. So I actually saw his website and wrote him a hard copy letter. So I didn't try to meet him through email or anything like that. I just wrote him a hard copy letter and said, I'm doing this study and, um, I'm interested in a, a few things and this is, these are the books that I've uh, done and he wrote me back a hard copy letter. <laughs> and, um, and so we, we began a correspondence and he read my book on purgatory and I read, you know, so we were able to uh, talk about my list of, of aerial phenomena. He was actually writing wonders in, in the sky, which was another book kind of like Magonia where he basically talks about, um, I think prior to 1850, like aerial phenomena prior to 1850. So he was doing a lot of really scholarly historical work. And we met at a conference um, and then um, we began to work together. And um, he is uh, an incredible researcher. He still researches. He just is um, a lot of people wonder where he's at. Well, he's not, you know, he's he doesn't do the social media thing. So he's yeah, he, but he's still he's a still active researcher. He's still immersed in all the study that he was before. He's still brilliant. If I would take every opportunity to hear him speak about the phenomena, he knows so much about it. And that's what I found out too, Mel, was that a lot of the people who, who I found that knew the most about the phenomena would, were a quote unquote invisible. Not that Jacques is invisible, but he's somewhat invisible now, right? He's hard to get a hold of. Um, you know, he'll be at a conference here, but you'll never know it. And, um, but a lot of the people who are doing the work in, in it now, they're not, they're not on social media. A lot of them actually do get wiped off the internet. They, um, you know, they just, you don't know who they are. We're not going to know who they are. 
I've been invited to speak at a conference next year, and usually I don't do conferences or speak at all. I'm just an interviewer. But the fact that he will be at this specific conference, I'm not going to name names yet, is uh, motivating me to be there, perhaps. Yes, I would go. Now, let me go back to the Chris Bledsoe story for a moment. I'm curious, how sure. has his experience and, and that of his family helped with your research? Yes, so um, Chris and I actually um, know each other very well. And um, his one of his sons went to the university uh, where I work. And I know all of his kids. They're just wonderful. And his wife. And so um, he knows my kids as well. We're, we're family friends, I guess you could say. And so I was able to basically witness what an experiencer experiences, um, not just the phenomena that he experiences, which is amazing, but also the things that go with it. The people that come to his house um, and want to know a lot about his experience Um, the people who want to study him, the people who want to employ him. Um, he's got some, you know, um, very interesting skills. He's got an interesting skill set. Uh, he can, what I would call remote view. And, you know, so he is, so just to see, to have kind of a window into his experience has been, Very, very interesting. It's not an easy experience for someone to endure, frankly. Um, you know, it's been, you know, you've, he, he's got um, people who are Hollywood people who are interested all the time. And so, I mean, it's just a zoo, uh, I, you know, and I'm, I just was amazed by the whole thing. And so um, supportive as, as much as I could be, you know, because, yeah. I know you were, uh, he, uh, pardon yeah. me for interrupting you, but uh, tell me if I need to remove this from the audio and I'll remove it. But I remember at the time that you were working with Hollywood and perhaps his story, is that something that you're still working on? Um, okay, so that, it may still be happening. I actually don't know at the moment. I do know that Chris, and I think you could keep this on. I do know that okay. um, this the people who are uh, have been working with Chris and me, um, are interested in the topic, uh, most, most likely they're experiencers as well. And they, they find it a fascinating topic and they'd like to see it on the big screen or on TV or something like that. And they want it done in a way that, you know, in the, in the introduction to my book, I basically say, you know, when Jacques helped Steven Spielberg with Close Encounters, you know, St Jacques said, why don't you do the actual phenomena? It might not be extraterrestrial. We don't know what it is. And Steven Spielberg said, oh, you know, the audience wants the ET, right? And, um, and I said, uh, you know, I think that the, the new people that are coming along, they want to actually represent the phenomena, you know, as it is experienced. I'm glad he said that. That that's. I'm glad that he stood his ground in a way and said, "What if this is not extraterrestrial? What if it's interdimensional? What if it's intraterrestrial?" You know, those are questions that we have to ponder. But it's interesting that you mentioned watching 60 Minutes and an interview with Robert Bigelow from Bigelow Aerospace, and the interviewer asked him, "Is it risky for you to say in public that you believe in UFOs and aliens?" And most people ask that question, and in the back of my, on, on, on their mind, and they're already thinking that those of us involved in this field were all crazy. And I'm sure many have been embarrassed and silenced, but the rest of us don't care. You and I have met millionaires and billionaires who believe and study this phenomenon. 
There are also, you know, there's this notion that UFOs only appear to cranks and weirdos, like you write in the book. Why do you think there is this lie that belief in UFOs is associated with those on the French cranks and weirdos, as the you know late Stephen Hawking once said? Yes, yes. So that's the I said that first off, so that people who would read the book would know my position was pretty strong. That this is not fringe. Um, and I think that part of this is the fallout. So we have declassified documents that show that there was a program that um, basically tried to discredit, uh, you know, the idea that that there were UFOs and for whatever reason, national security or whatnot. I mean, most likely legitimate reasons. But this was a successful program. And this this continues today. So if you look at say, the National Institute of Science, you'll see that um, UFOs is uh, right there with belief in ghosts and paranormal and astrology and things like that. Well, it's kind of interesting because a lot of people who are ufologists that I know would never look at their horoscopes, right? So they would never, you know, so they don't believe in ghosts. So the the UFO mythos, I think, um, has now, I think, Mel, I think that you and I are seeing it, you know, in our lifetime, it's changing. So it's gone from something that was completely, you know, you had to kind of turn embarrassed and red when people talked about it. And now I think that young people, they don't care. You know, a lot of when I, I actually did a survey, I used to be, I used to do a survey of my students and about 88% um, believed in one way in, uh, in intelligent life that was non-human outside of earth, non-earth intelligent life, you know, that was not animal, that weren't animals as well. So, um, I think that we we're seeing a change. I can see how UFOs and religion may share a, a link, but what is the connection between religion and technology? Okay. Well, I think that there's an, an old myth and it's the, the myth of Prometheus and technology is something that, in fact, there was a, uh, I was with a student yesterday and it was a fairly young student. In my university, we, um, we have uh, early college students and this is a 13 year old. And he asked me, he said, Dr. Basilka, is the tablet a satanic? Is it from Satan? And I looked at him and I thought, what? I said, where, who told you that? And he said, well, I just want to know. And so I said, listen, I said, in, in every age, I said, even 4,000 years ago, even 2,000 years ago, people thought new technologies were somehow given to us by, by non-human intelligent beings. And sometimes those beings are evil and sometimes those beings are good. So you've got this old myth of Prometheus and Prometheus is um, you know, this Titan who is able to steal fire from the gods and give it to the humans. And then he's completely, um, you know, uh, punished for doing this in a most horrific way, right? Um, his liver is eaten out every day. Um, so the gods punish him for, for doing that. So, you know, there's this idea that we, we, that technology is somehow associated with, you know, it's mystical, um, and in fact, if you look at a lot of the language that we use for technology, you know, we have the, uh, you know, the, the demon in your computer that helps you to find things and, and the wizard and, and stuff like that. It's mystical language. And so technology has long had 
this kind of mystical aura. We don't even know how a cell phone works, you and I. So I know some people do, but but I sure don't. Um, our computers, you know, it's like it, they mystically turn on when we, you know, when we want them to. Um, so there's there is also this idea that that now we have some new that this the beans that are coming, they have advanced technology because we can't figure their technology out. Well, this is the old myth, right, of Prometheus. There's this technology. It's it's non-human. We don't know what it is, but the, the beans must be advanced because their technology is doing things that our technology could never do. So that's how technology gets figured into it. Plus, we are living in, in an unprecedented time. So... Um, during graduate school, I was in California during the dot-com boom, and everywhere was technology. In fact, I, I didn't go to graduate school for a long time because I could easily get a job doing just the slightest – this is in the late 90s – the slightest thing that had to do with technology, and I'd make a ton of money doing it. And so why go to school when you could, you know, do, do anything with technology and make a lot of money? Well, you know, it got bored I got bored after a while, but – the fact is, is that we're in a new, just like the printing press changed religion. You know, there was the Protestant Reformation and it directly came from the printing press. You know, sola scriptura, that's a, um, that's a theological doctrine that came directly out of the ability for people to be able to read the Bible on their own. Sola scriptura means scripture alone. It's Latin for scripture alone. So what's happening now that we are immersed with the screens of, you know, of the Internet? of our phones. So uh, we're in an unprecedented time and it's changing religion. And my one of the contentions I make in the book is that this new idea that we're encountering these these beings and they're helping with technology, this is actually a religion. This is religious-like. It's mythic. So that's part of what I argue in the book. This is not part of your book, but I want to ask you because of your expertise. You probably have heard that there's this notion that in the very near future, call it environmentalists, tree huggers, whatever. They want to push for books to no longer be available in physical format. They want to have them all in ebooks. And if, you, if history is a witness to this, even the Bible, many books have been removed from the Bible, the Book of Enoch and many others. Imagine what would happen to your book. Right now I'm holding it physically in my hand. If in 10, 20 years down the road, when they decide to, if... And when this happens, somebody reads chapter whatever four and they don't like it and your book is only available in e-format. Do you agree that books should be banned physically and we should move to e-format and perhaps allowing the powers that want to be to edit history this way? Wow, that's huge. That's a huge question. It gets to a lot of really the, the theoretical things that I get into in some of my other books. Um, that are not that are, you know, academic books. And basically, um, there's a lot of research that shows that students that your brain works differently when you read something and it's a hard when I said I, I wrote Jacques a hard copy letter, I had to say a hard copy letter, people would just assume I meant email. Okay, so when you have a physical copy of a book, and you're reading it, and you're writing Parts of your brain are being stimulated that aren't being stimulated when you're looking at a screen and reading it on a screen. Now, is this good or bad? This is the question. I I actually have my students do both in my classes because I don't know 
what's going to happen. I mean, unfortunately, I think the trend is that we're going to, you know, less and less rely on hard copy books. And that is going to change our brains. Um, there's a woman very close to me at Duke University, uh, N. Catherine Halas. And she basically, that's all she writes about is how technology is, is rewiring our brains and how, you know, we are, we think completely differently than we did even 15, 20 years ago because of technology. Uh, this kind of argument was also made when the printing press came about. So it's made now about the printing press and how that changed the conception, it changed society in fundamental ways that were unprecedented and that were unintended. Okay. So we don't know how you're, I mean, you're bringing up such an amazing and good point. We actually, and that's part of why I wrote this book. We actually don't know what, how this is going to affect us and affect how we think. It is affecting how we think though. There's no doubt about that. I mean, there's, there are too many studies that show that our brains are changing. In fact, part of that research I put in the middle part of my book um, where I talk about when we interface with film, um, we change our memories. Okay. So like um, I think I have a chapter where I talk about total recall, right? And total recall, you know, uh, where implanted memories, um, well, actually movies can do this to us and books can do this on a, a on a level that's not as intense because the more saturated we are with visual and uh, audio, uh, the more our, our memories are affected. So we do become, when we look at things like the UFO phenomena, of course we're going to accept it more because we're saturated with it. I have, media. A, I have a question that I have in my notes for, for later that's related to what you just said, very important. But how does technological infrastructure shape religious practices and beliefs? Yes. Okay. So again, so what I do is I use the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation as an example of how a technology, what we call the printing press, changed religious belief. So you've got, you know, um, prior to that, most people aren't reading. They can't read. And they're getting their information either from, you know, oral tradition or they're seeing it in churches and things like that. Um, when the printing press comes about, it sparks a massive revolution. OK, because people now can actually read the Bible. They can interpret it on their own and um, it changes religion. You know, now we have uh, thousands of denominations of the Protestant religion and. Um, Years before that, Plato actually talked about the very technology of writing itself. And he said that this was going to change the ways in which people lived. And that's exactly what happened. So um, prior to the writing that Plato was talking about, there were epics and people had giant, you know, they had giant poems memorized. They they knew things and those things, their ram was in their head, right? Their memories were actually filled with with lots and lots and lots of information. Well, we can't do that today. You mean today oral tradition? Yeah, the oral tradition. We can't do that today. Uh, you know, we can't memorize like we used to. Our brains are changed by the kinds of things we interface with and technology. Can you remember our phone numbers? Exactly. We can't even remember where we put our keys down. So our memories are completely different. Our memories are now in our computers, right, or in our phones. Um, so this, these are two examples of how how our environment 
it changes the ways in which we think that, you know, there's a symbiosis between our technologies and, and the way we are, the way we think. And so I take that framework and I basically apply it to today where we live within an environment of technology. There's no, we can't go off the grid, Mel. People say, oh, I'm going to go off the grid. Well, you really actually can't go off the grid because all of those satellites that are up there are actually beaming all kinds. You know, you're surrounded, you're living in a sea of frequencies constantly. We're not going off. We're not going backwards. We're not going off the grid. Well, if we're not going off the grid, we better start thinking about how we're living within it because it's inside of us and outside of us. We're immersed in it. And so how does this, how does this impact religion? Well, basically that's what American cosmic is about. You know, we're starting to think of ourselves as cosmic beings. We're not, we're no longer thinking of ourselves as kind of these, you know, planetary global beings. We're starting, hey, what happens if we get, do this to the planet? Where will we go? I mean, there's a huge push right now. I don't know. Um, I was in Walmart the other day, and I know this actually because I know people who are in the space program, and they're saying, well, we're going to target this, the people in second grade. And this was a couple years ago, and my kids were pretty young. And so they said, we want them to, they're the ones who are going to be the astronauts that go to Mars. And a friend of mine who's in the space program said, well, you know, that's a one-way ticket. So I went on a walk with my kids and I said, when they tell you how great it is to be an astronaut, don't believe it, don't believe it. So, you know, and so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of press right now about, you know, the space program and, and going off planet and that type of thing. So. That's how it's changing us. We're, we're our religion, our religiosity is moving. Um, either religions like Catholicism or Protestantism or some types of religions or new religions are going to include ideas of, of non-human intelligences, you know, not just angels, but ETs, or um, you're going to have UFO-based religions. That's another question that I have for later, exactly what you just said, that because it's almost a dogma. A lot of people, I'm just going to say it right now. I'm just thinking, I don't have the question in front of me, but I'm thinking that a lot of people who look back at uh, famous contactees from the past, from the 1950s, let me pick up a few of them, where they almost come down as if they were a messiah and they impart upon the their flock, quote-unquote, a message of hope and so on, almost very similar to the work of Jesus Christ. And they offer devotion to that being. Do you see a similarity here? And this is why perhaps we're seeing that ufology is almost becoming a religion to some people. Okay, that's a really great question. I do. What I see is I see a move away from the Messiah complex type UFO religion, like Heaven's Gate, let's say. Um, be, and, the, and thank goodness. And the reason I see this is because we have... Um, Technology has a democratic function. And um, there's this uh, person who talks about um, this topic. And uh, I think his website is called The Contact Underground. Joseph Burks, do you know him? Yeah, he's really interesting. Very, I've, I've interviewed him twice. And um, his, he's fascinating. And um, he's got the idea, I think. Uh, and, and he may not know this, but I believe that it's because of now a lot of people are having contact and they have this contact and then they're able to go into communities like Facebook groups and such, and they're able to talk with each other. So there's this democratizing 
um, impetus here that you don't get with the more Messiah type 1980s, you know, 1950s, 1960s, 70s, around the 80s. And now you have more of a, you know, where lots and lots of people have it. So if lots and lots of people, there is no Messiah. There is no one person. Oh, this is the person. Let's go to him or her. You know, they're the ones who know. Well, no, I mean, all kinds of people are. And so I find that to be a very, I actually think that that's a direct result of the technology that we use. A lot of people, especially those in academia, go through what the late Dr. John Mack called an epistemological shock. Yes. And shock to the uh, shock to the fundamental understanding of the world and the universe. Did you go through this? Oh yes, I'm still going through it, Mel. <laughs> so I went through this in 2012, um, right when I met you, um, and then it was very intense for a year, and I I didn't know quite, um, you know, really. I I just I felt like everything I'd thought before was completely wrong. And then I rethought it and thought, wait a minute, it's just that what I thought had been kind of like dead, which was religion, is actually alive. And it's alive in this new way. And it has this new, you know, the the uh, the venue is different. It's now technological. We've got technology to kind of convey it. And um, I still go through it because I still know lots of people who work with um you know, what they consider to be the phenomena. And these are people that I respect a lot. And since I respect them a lot, I value what they believe. And I can't help but be impacted by what they believe. So yes, I still go through the shock. I'm still going through the shock. You say that you feel as if you've been, you've been studying this phenomenon your whole life, but you didn't call it UFO research. You called it religious studies. Can you explain? Yes. Yes. Once I recognized that people were having these real experiences of um, what, you know, they interpret it in various ways, like Chris Bledsoe, let's take him, for example, you know, oh, um, they're funny looking angels is what he called them. Right. So um, once I recognized that, I went back and I reread a lot of the sources that I had studied as a younger academic uh, and a graduate student. So I looked at Teresa of Avila, who is a saint. Uh, now in a doctor of the church. And she had this, um, she was a 16th century um, nun. And she went through, a, a basically it looks very similar to an experience that Chris Bledsoe had. So she already knew what, you know, she's Catholic. So she had an idea because of tradition of what angels were supposed to be like. And she basically, I reread that source, the original source. And there's a, there's a, a statue of her in Rome having this experience. And it's a statue by Bernini and is famous. And it shows Teresa in ecstasy and this little cherubic angel next to her with a, um, a dart, right? Kind of like an arrow or dart. And so I, I decided I was going to reread that original source in her diary, which I did. And it's fascinating because if you reread it, it looks, it doesn't actually look like the Bernini statue. It looks so, it looks incredibly different. And she's very conflicted about it. She says, well, this was a day, a morning, and I was, you know, I was just about to go into prayer. And I noticed down on the left of me, I noticed a little uh, fiery being. And it was not very tall. It was short. It was maybe about three feet tall. And I didn't know what it was, but I guess it's an angel. 
So she wasn't even sure what to call it. So she called it an angel. And then it took out this this um, dart and it, um, you know, examined her, I guess, or, you know, it it, um, it put the arrow in her. And um, she said that it was it was both a pain and simultaneously a wonderful feeling. And it was quite an experience for her and it changed her life. And she also said this about it. She said that the angels that she previously would have seen were all in her mind, kind of imaginary. But this one was actually real. So there were a lot of things to that. That's when I started to recognize I I looked at the um, I looked at Catholic history again. And, you know, I had this long list of strange things that I had found on my own. And so I thought, wow, (laughs) that's when I started to uh, really enjoy Jacques Vallée's work, you know, because he also did the same thing in 1968. So he's uh, ahead of the game, way ahead of the game. Here he is in, I, I think, like the equivalent of the French National Archive. And he's using his skills, you know, Greek and Latin. And he's looking through a lot of historical texts coming up with aerial phenomena as well. So that's when I recognized that that what I had been doing was basically what Jacques had been doing. And I called it religious studies. Speaking of Santa Teresa, those of us who grew up religious remember all the stories about miracles, spontaneous yes. healings, apparitions. Yes. I went to a yes. Catholic school named Santa Teresa, same one. Wow. And I remember wow. stories about her experience. In fact, I just returned from Rome, as I mentioned before, and saw her statue at the Cornaro Chapel. And are there any parallels between these religious experiences and what some UFO experiences have reported? Well, okay, so this is a really good question, and um, I have written a, a, a paper and published it, and it's accessible online for free. Um, and it's uh, it's basically what I'm doing is uh, I actually interviewed somebody from John Mack's book, Carlos, Edward Carlos, and he lives about eight hours from me. So I went and visited him for a weekend, he and his wife, and I talked to them. And basically what I did was I compared, I looked at his story which sounded almost exactly like Teresa's story. And in fact, when he talked to me, this is what he said. He said, John Mack never should have called it alien abduction because that's not what it is. And these things, I don't even think they're aliens. He said, I more would like to say that there's something more akin to the the angel tradition within Catholicism. He goes, but I just don't know what they are. So they're, they're light beings, they're beings of light. So, you know, he was having a really hard time using the different language of these various ways of talking about his experiences, but his experiences were, I, I, I basically, um, compare those two experiences. So yes, I think you can say that there are patterns that are very, very similar. We have two camps. We have the camp that says they're angelic beings, but we also, especially people see that in our YouTube channel when you see the comments whenever we discuss the topic. So many people who I would say they're religious extremists, they immediately attack the interview uh, interviewee and say this is all demonic. All these are demonic. What authority do they have to say this all the time? Right. It's, um, I think it might be fear-based. Unfortunately, Chris Bledsoe experienced something like that when he finally admitted to his neighbors and his church group early on that he felt he had what, uh, you know, a traditional UFO experience. And um, they, they called what he experienced demons, demonic. And I mean, he had a really horrible time. So I, I, I actually met him as he was just um, recovering 
from the trauma that that caused him. So I don't think there is any authority to, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say I know it what's going on. But I know that some people call them angels, some people call them demons. I mean, some people have had terrible experiences, some people have had great experiences. You know, some people have had neutral experiences. So I think that there are probably there's probably a variety of things that are being experienced. And people are using their own backgrounds and traditions to interpret them. What is hierophany? Oh, a hierophany is... Yes, please define the term. Why is this word so important in your research? (laughs) Okay, so um, I had gone to New Mexico uh, to a site with two scientists who believed that there were crashed alien craft there and parts left over. And this is one of the crashes that happened in the 1940s. And so it was, I had to go blindfolded. So um, with uh, one of my my academic Pay attention, folks. This is really interesting. Yeah. So I went with my academic, one of my academic friends and, um, he was, um, he's fascinated with the topic. And so we were both blindfolded. Uh, some, this other scientist, um, took us. And so we went there and, um, and it was an incredibly amazing experience. So we were, we were blindfolded for about 45 minutes. I, I don't know where we were, but we were in New Mexico and, um, we did find some parts and uh, we had uh, metal detectors that were specially configured to find certain types of things. And so um, we, we spent all day there. We dug and dug and dug. It was a somewhat inhospitable but beautiful environment. And, um, you know, really windy. Uh, you had to be careful not to get a sunburn and, um, you know, rattlesnakes and things like that. I mean, it was kind of like eerie but also really beautiful. But we did find these parts. And a hierophany is the uh, in religious studies is the appearance of the sacred the appearance of a god or the, or something sacred and so for these two this was the beginning of this is the beginning of my book it's the first chapter and i start with this trip to new mexico and i go not as a skeptic but as an agnostic because i respect these two scientists who are eminently successful and we're we're on this trip and we go and we find these parts and for them you know, this is sacred to them. These are the parts that come from some other place. They're not human. They're not created by humans. And they're, we're going to take them back and they're going to study these parts with the, you know, instruments that they have and, and that type of thing. So I call it, uh, this is where I begin to say, for these scientists, this is a hierophany. This is the appearance of the sacred. It's a sacred site to them. And one of the people still calls it the sacred site. So when people want to go to that site, he always refers to it as they want to go to the sacred site. Very, very interesting. And of course, these two scientists, you cannot reveal their names for for their safety. Am I correct? Yeah, no, we can't reveal their names. I mean, mostly because of the John Mack effect. So when, yeah. um, you know, Harvard professor John Mack began to study uh, you have people who were experiencers basically is what he was studying and he's a psychiatrist. So he's studying them and he basically says they're not delusional. You know, they're normal people. And Harvard puts him under, you know, they, he's a tenured research professor, um, as safe as one can get had already won a Pulitzer prize. So this is a person who, uh, seems to be beyond, um, you know, reproach in his scholarship. Yet Harvard puts him under uh, an investigation that lasts for a long time. And he has to basically defend his scholarship 
uh, and he comes out on top. So he, you know, he wins. But, you know, for researchers today, they're afraid of that effect. Um, I'm a full professor and I'm the chair of my department. And I didn't undertake this as an assistant professor, um, you know, or, you know, I didn't undertake it really until I knew that that my full professorship was coming up and that I felt pretty safe. I had a, a lot of publications, you know, so I had stellar records, so I felt safe enough to do it. But I would not suggest a, a young academic get involved in this study because of the, because of the John the John Mack effect. You know, it's it, yeah, it's it's sad. It's it actually it takes a toll on your academic reputation. Well, that that's the primary effect. The secondary effect is that he died in very mysterious circumstances, and I believe during our our conference. Dr. Leo Sprinkle was there too, and he suffered the same consequences. He was told to leave the the uh, university he used to teach at because, on his free time, he was helping experiencers on his free time, not even part of the the curriculum. It's scary. Yeah. Absolutely. Now let's discuss your journey to the desert once again. This is very interesting. That and then also. The one technological item that comes to mind, which is very present in religious book, is the Ark of the Covenant. Would you agree? Yes. yes. Oh, absolutely. Huge. Now, how is this related to ufology, for example? Because we get so many people discuss not only this one, but you know, they even talk about the the the, the Turin. The, uh, what do you call it? Shroud of Turin. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they, these are very okay. So, in my conclusion. You know, I start by talking about the artifacts that we find. And so I go through kind of talking about them. Then I, I, in the middle parts of the book, I actually get into talking about the technology and, you know, how that's impacting how we believe. And then I go back to the artifacts. And I go back to the artifact because what I want to say is that there have been throughout religion, you know, throughout religious history, you have relics and you have, um, you know, you have physical objects that people ascribe miraculous uh, attributes to. Okay. And so what's then this difference between this artifact here that's found at the quote unquote sacred site and something like the shroud of Turin, which by the way is quite mysterious. You know, you've got uh, the image of a man on the shroud that appears to be made with technology that couldn't have existed when it's carbon dated to. So, I mean, it's quite mysterious. So we do have mysterious objects. Like a, like a scan. Yeah, like a scan. I mean, wow, how did they do that, right? <laughs> That's quite a forgery there. Um, so we've got mysterious objects. And, you know, if they're associated with religion, we generally discount them. You know, scientists discount them. They say, oh, you know, they're religious, religious objects. But actually, why don't we just study them and, and like explore their mystery? The reason I like these scientists that I've been, you know, associated with is because first they are at the top of their field. I mean, um, they there is you know there there were they're at the top of their field, and um, and they're not afraid to study this. And I'll tell you why they're not afraid because they know that data that is mysterious is data that's going to lead us in progress, right? It's if it's mysterious, why run away from it? Why, Repeat you know, that because those are. Key words, what you just said. Yes. Okay. So data that doesn't fit 
is the data we really have to explore. So the mysterious, the mysterious shouldn't scare us. We should actually, you know, try to study it and identify it because this is going to lead us in scientific progress. Otherwise, so we what, become a stagnant society. Exactly. So the science. So one of the scientists, uh, the person who I talk about in chapter two is James. And I go back to James at the end uh, in the conclusion. And I love something that he said. He said, you know, when I teach my graduate students, uh, a lot of times what they're trying to do is they're trying to make the data fit their hypothesis. And it doesn't. And it doesn't fit. And they try to then like make it go away, make it disappear. He goes, but what I do is I go back to them and I say, what's that? And they say, oh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that is. Uh, maybe we should just ignore it. And he says, ignore it at your peril, because that is your PhD dissertation. That is what will get you in you know, a job right there, because that is what you have to explore. And the reason that is there is because it somehow fits. You just haven't found the, the puzzle piece yet. So we have to hold it right there so I can break the episode into two. But before we break... I want to just ask you something, and then you'll tell me on the other side. I'm very interested to know about Tyler D. Obviously, you cannot tell me his full name for obvious reasons. You first met him you know, virtually, and then you met him in person. And also, Tyler said he had a specific protocol for connecting yes. with off-planet intelligence. It was a physical and mental protocol. I want you to explain how it, how it works, and if you witnessed it. And also, when you went to the Vatican, you went to the secret archives, you were there with... Tyler, am I correct? Yes. So you'll tell me on the other side, folks. You cannot miss part two. But how can people buy the book, American Cosmic UFOs, Religion, Technology? Um, so we can buy the book um, at the... There's actually, Mel, I'll give you, after this talk, um, a 30% discount for your audience. There's a code they can use. If they buy it at the Oxford University Press website, and I'll, I'll give you that link. Oh, do you have uh, that code so you can verbally tell them, or do you want me to include it as a link on our website? I can actually get that code for you. Um, let's see. It is on my computer, so let sure. me pull it up. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's got two release dates, strangely, and I'm pretty sure it's because of Amazon. So it's got the first release date is January 2nd with Oxford University Press, and this is the only website they can use the code at. Uh, and then it's going to be released February 1st um, on Amazon. And um, there's already a lot of reviews coming out a lot uh, about it from professional reviewers. And also, I guess the Amazon has professional reviewers, too, and they've been reviewing it. But we can't. Normal people like us can't go in and review it yet. <laughs> of course. And I'll hold this interview probably at the, so that it can coincide with the release at the time. Oh, great. Okay. Excellent. And your website is... AmericanCosmic.com. Folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with Dr. Diana Walsh-Pasolka. A pleasure to have her on because this is a perspective that I'm always interested in and not that many people can cover this subject with the seriousness and professionalism and intellect that Dr. Pasolka can. This is Mel Fabregas. You're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. 
Thank you.